Greetings, and thank you for joining me on this podcast known as Faith to Live By. I'm Pam Christian, your host, and each week I seek to help us discover and live in life-giving truth and experience all the hope truth provides. I seek to help us understand current events from a biblical worldview and prayerfully discern how God wants us to respond so we can see His will done on earth as it is in heaven. Early on with my podcasts, I had some Christian critics who believed I shouldn't discuss current events, politics, government, and things like that. Their reasoning was twofold. First, there's nothing obvious in the New Testament where Jesus personally responded to government or politics. Second, they had bought into the claim that the church and state should remain separate. However, since the outbreak of COVID-19 and the mismanagement by governments, media, the medical and scientific industries, with all their oppressive controls upon our freedoms, their point of view has changed. (laughs) They now say they are glad I'm helping them understand current events, especially since they had not been keeping informed and now being caused to learn a whole lot very fast makes them feel overwhelmed. And that means they welcome my help. And I suspect this could be true for you as well. I want you to know I'm learning with you. I mean, I've always been one with the banner of justice over my head, and I've always been willing to fight against injustice. But little did I know how deep the corruption and extent of evil had become, not only in America, but worldwide, until we began dealing with COVID-19. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God has intentionally caused his people all over the world to wake up from our apathetic state and to take our rightful place as his bride And as such, we must make ourselves ready for Christ's return. As Christians, we are called by God in the example of Jesus to share truth, authority, and power of God in every cultural arena, or in what is now referred to as the seven mountains of society. If Christians were actively engaged in government, education, business, family, religion, media, and arts slash entertainment, boldly sharing truth, righteousness by way of law and order and activity, protecting our God-given freedoms and rights, we wouldn't be in the world of a mess we're in today. Before I go much further, let's consider what the Bible teaches us as Christians specific to governments. First, the Bible teaches God is government. He is king of his kingdom, which rules over all governments for all the nations of the world. We read that the nations of the world are Christ's inheritance. We learn from the Old Testament When God's people sought to have an intermediary, a government with kings and judges, they ended up falling far away from God. Then God's people cried out to God in repentance, realizing they had allowed laws and practices to govern them contrary to the will of God. Only when the kingdom of God is honored over and above earthly governments do God's people prevail. The Great Commission from Matthew 28, 18-20 tells us to make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded us until he returns. In Romans, the Apostle Paul informs us that no earthly government exists without God's input and for us to obey the laws of the land unless they are contrary to the word of God. From just this overview alone, I conclude God's people are to be the salt and the light in every arena of the world, the seven mountains of society. I believe it's precisely because we've bought into the lie from the enemy of God that church and state should be separate that caused us to withdraw from society and culture. And that's why we're in the world of hurt we are in today. 
We've lost our salt, and we become good for nothing in terms of being the righteous influence over evil. If you think there's nothing you can do to help push evil back, I want you to think again. In fact, I want you to know about the testimony of two Iowa moms who, in response to the mistreatment their children received in the mismanagement of COVID-19, challenged the school board for the proper treatment of their children and won. Emily Peterson and Kimberly Reichs are now known as the Iowa Mama Bears, and they are inspiring parents everywhere to get involved. I'll have a link for you to their website in the show notes. I had the privilege of interviewing them last year, and I recommend you listen to that podcast. It was named God is Looking for Unrestrained Obedience, and it first posted on August 4th of 2021. I'll have a link for you in the show notes to that specific episode. You can gain courage by their example to know what you can and must do to protect your children in public schools. They also offer a guide to help you make a difference in your community, so I'll have a link to that particular PDF for you to download as well. Today's program is a new launch from last week when my guest Alex Newman helped us understand the role the United Nations has played in the effort of a one-world order and how they have very long tentacles that have worked their way into the public school system right here in America, and of course, other nations around the world as well. Part of the UN's effort to establish a one-world order requires the destruction and dismantling of any nation or power that is a threat to their agenda. It's interesting to note that these self-appointed elite striving to establish a one-world order say they don't believe in God and that humanity is the highest order of authority on earth. Yet, they see America, and specifically the Christian church, as their greatest threat. To help us further understand the history and extension of the United Nations' involvement in our public schools today, Jonathan Butcher, an endowed chair and research fellow in education policy with the Heritage Foundation, is my guest. Jonathan is the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. He has researched and testified on education policy and school choice programs around the United States. Jonathan co-edited and wrote chapters in the book, The Not-So-Great Society, which provides conservative solutions to problems created by the ever-expanding federal footprint in preschool and K-12 through and also higher education. You can learn more about Jonathan at the link I'll have for you in the show notes. Now, let me just tell you right up front, Everything Jonathan had to share about the critical race theory made my head swim. But hang in there with me and know I'll provide a recap to help us after you hear his interview. So here's my interview with Jonathan Butcher from the Heritage Foundation. Jonathan Butcher, I am so honored and grateful that you are part of my podcast today because I really know You've got a wealth of information to help my listeners, especially those who are parents with children in the public school system. Let's just get right into the thick of things right now. We've become aware that the United Nations has reached far into many countries, not just America, through our public school systems to reach our children, not only for the ideal of a one world government, but to cause division and strife. And we're seeing a lot of that with the critical race theory. Can you help us understand more? We need to get our minds around this. Yeah, thank you. Yes, so one of the things that Americans need to recognize is that critical race theory did not originate in America. It is not an American philosophy. In fact, it originated 
from critical legal theory, which itself originated from critical theory, which comes from Germany in the 1920s. There was a group of German uh, Marxists who wanted the uh, working class to overthrow the system, the regime there, just as the Bolsheviks had done in Russia. They were frustrated that it hadn't been accomplished by the end of the 1920s. And so here you have this group of, of academics largely, but they were all avowed Marxists who wanted to see Marxism rejuvenated effectively. They were chased out of Germany by the Nazis in the late 1930s, came to the United States, and there they settled at Columbia University. So they settled at an academic institution. And from there, their ideas were you know, widely you know, written about, discussed, debated, and, and really spread uh, through higher education very quickly. And, and it affected um, a whole new strain of thought, which was critical legal theory. So these ideas, this, this critical concept means that first, there is no authentic truth. There is no absolute truth, right? This is a Freudian postmodernism that is about as relativistic and sort of ambiguous as it sounds. But I think what they meant here is that we cannot rest future decisions on lessons that we learned from the past, uh, right? That the only way that um, we can make decisions is based on lived experiences and how we feel that the world is interacting with us. So that's one part. The other side is Marxism, right? There is a class struggle that they wanted to perpetuate here in the United States. I mean, it's ironic, right? And, and I think biographers of critical race theory of the philosophy itself have said as much. It's ironic that they settled in New York City, right? They settled at Columbia to, uh, to spread their ideas and uh, when you take these two concepts of postmodernism and, and Marxism, and you put them together and you apply it to American law, that is how we resulted with critical legal theory, really in the 1970s in particular is when that took shape. Critical legal theory looks at American law and says that American law cannot be neutral. Law cannot be neutral. It is issued by those who are in power, and it is meant to keep those who are marginalized always marginalized. Right. So American law was created to keep people down. That's critical legal theory in a nutshell. Right. So into the 1980s and early 1990s, you have individuals such as Derek Bell, a law professor at Harvard, Kimberly Crenshaw, another law professor, Angela Harris, several others whose names will come up. They said, look, critical legal theory took the critical idea and the progress of Marxism. They took it further down the path, they, they made progress. But here's the thing, race is the issue. The reason that America is oppressive or the problem with America is that America will never escape its racist past. It will always be a place of prejudice. And so because of that, America must be condemned and the system must be taken apart. Okay, let me ask you a question on that because this is I, I'm already hearing something of a dichotomy. You said that the critical legal theory is intended to keep the marginalized down. And then you said that the critical race theory is intended to divide. So this sounds like a top-down effort. Well, critical legal theory is saying that American law is meant to keep people down. And critical race theory is taking it one step further and it's saying the reason that American law is oppressive is because racism explains everything in public and private life. Everything that we see around us in law, in policy, in schools, it can all be explained and should be explained, must be explained from the perspective of racism. 
racism is embedded in America's structures, public and private social structures. And therefore, the system, the law, government, uh, public and private sectors, they must be taken apart and must be dis disassembled in order for a Marxist superstructure to be built on top of it. And I know that some, some will hear, some may hear that and say, wait a minute, you're, you're telling me that those who are teaching critical race theory in schools today are really Marxists who are trying to reinstate some sort of socialist world on us. They really are. I'm hearing you say that American law is oppressive because of racism. And I'm hearing from that people are considered guilty before they're considered innocent, which is contrary to everything I was ever taught in civics. Most certainly. I'll give you one more uh, bit of research um, that, that might, might help to uh, describe some of this. And then I'll give you a very practical example of what this looks like today. So very quickly, the, the research here, there's another name I'll give you. There's a professor down at Alabama. His name is Richard Delgado. And he was worked very closely with Derek Bell. And uh, Bell came up with this idea called interest convergence. Interest convergence theory says that the only reason that civil rights made any progress in the United States was because white individuals saw that to maintain their power, they allowed civil rights to happen or progress. So it, their interests converged with racial interests. So that's a very cynical take, right, on the civil rights movement and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Yeah, and, and actually people I know who at least lived through the end of the civil rights movement and the successes that we saw truly believe in it. It wasn't this special interest like you're proposing that many people had. Help help me balance that out. Sure. I, I think it's they the the way that they can that they, Delgado, Bell and others, that they can support their ideas is to say that America is systemically racist. And to explain that America is systemically racist, they must say then that those who they claim, you know, have all the power. The only reason that civil rights would progress is that white people thought that it would preserve their power to do so in small ways, which, you know, obviously is, is nonsense, right? I mean, this is, uh, we're talking today about the individuals who are certainly, I mean, everyone from the president of the United States to heads of the military to business leaders, et cetera, are individuals who are either uh, Americans who are black or who are Hispanic or you know what have you. I mean, there's there's any number of examples that we can give to show that the ideas and ideals that America had, those were right from the beginning, right? Freedom and opportunity and equality under the law. The application of those ideals under slavery and under the Jim Crow era that application was wrong, right? I mean, there were people who fell down and did not appropriately live out uh, America's most closely held concepts. And that was the problem, right? It was not our ideals that were at fault. So uh, I'll give you a very quick example of what this looks like today. So in Iowa City public schools in Iowa, they have an entire page devoted to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's all sorts of resources on there for whiteness studies or white privilege studies. And they link to the radical arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center called Learning for Justice, which produces material that says that if you are a white individual, you have privilege, that makes you oppressive, and you must, the implicit assumption here is that you must apologize for who you are based on your immutable characteristics. I'll actually, I was thinking of just one other that that really puts a finer point on it, but uh, there were some parents 
who took a screenshot of a virtual lesson in Fairfax County, Virginia, earlier this week or late last week, and it was a bingo card. And it was a white privilege bingo card. If you are male, white, heterosexual, a child of the military and Christian, bingo, right? You have privilege. And so again, the implicit outcome is you must apologize for the privilege that, that you have. I mean, the, the insult to American military there is, I mean, I'm not even sure I have the words for that. Right. It's beyond that. It's beyond the insult in that regard. One of the things that I've been learning and bringing to my audience is that this whole effort for a one world order, the only thing that stands in the way is God, the very God that these people who profess and desire a one world order say they don't believe in. And Christianity is the threat that they're trying to minimize and get rid of. And you're bringing this point out again. This is being played out in the classrooms with basically covert teaching of critical race theory. And as I understand it, it's not that like there's a class that's called critical race theory necessarily. There may be some, but the whole concept of critical race is interwoven in other subjects. Isn't this correct? You're exactly right. So it's easy to point to examples in, say, ethnic studies. That's a common place to find critical race theories ideas. California has a ethnic studies program that the State Department of Education developed, has a whole chapter on intersectionality which is a component of critical race theory that Kimberly Crenshaw, who I mentioned earlier, that she created you know, some 30 years ago. And this, with intersectionality, the idea is that any of your immutable characteristics can be, you can add those together and at the intersection of being, you know, of your race, of your gender, of your, you know, your chosen sexual preference, that intersection, that is where all of your oppression lies. So you can be oppressed in multiple ways. Uh, based on those things. So that, that's what intersectionality. And that I think that is one of the reasons I, that I've seen scholars who uh, have, have written about racial issues for many, many years have said, uh, this takes away any idea of personal responsibility, of personal agency, as uh, Ian Rowe, who is an excellent writer on this and speaker on this issue, has, has said. Uh, and instead, it makes it out that we are all victims who are at the mercy of whoever is in power uh, over us. And actually, we're seeing that play out. I mean, we've been seeing that play out worldwide with the management of COVID. And in many ways, and I've been sharing this with my audience, I believe God has been exposing the corruption wherever it exists all around the world so that his people, the Christians who are the threat to this one world order and all these other philosophies that fall into Marxism, have an opportunity to take back territory we've lost, that the kingdom will of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's important that we take time to learn these things as far reaching as they are from my personal experience, and I would imagine that of my audience. It's important that we listen to people like you who have studied the realities of how these philosophies and ideals have come into our public sector and into our culture and through our public schools and through our children. And it explains why I have so many friends who are close to my age who have children that are way, way left. And that's not how they were raised in their own home, but that's how they are as adults. And the divide seems so great that it almost seems insurmountable. What tips would you have? What, Of course, prayer and getting our lives right with the Lord and maintaining that and wanting to seek the unity because God's about unity of all races. I mean, my goodness, God has made all of us. We're all made in his image. So he's every color imaginable, every race imaginable. But we need to have some practical ways to unify 
and make a difference. What would you say to encourage my listeners in that? So that's a great question. I think the first is to understand that not all school board members are out to get parents. I think that's been in the news lately that you've had the National School Boards Association, which is a an interest group that has purported to represent school boards around the country, but in fact, their ideals and goals mirror the National Education Association, which is a teachers union. They have promoted critical race theory on their website and the ideas within it. So know that school board members should be representing the communities that uh, for, for which they've been either elected or appointed to serve. So these are other parents and business leaders and parents should be able to go to a school board meeting and I'd be able to um, not only express you know, what they feel is going on in school and wh what they're opposed to or in favor of, but find those school board members who feel the same way. Uh, we did a, a survey of school board members at the Heritage Foundation a couple of years ago, and it was a weighted survey really that had more school board members in the Southeast and uh, who were older. But what we found was a, a high percentage, I mean, 70% and up, of school board members who disagreed with the central ideas in critical race theory. Oh, that's that's encouraging. That's very encouraging. Yeah, that's right. That's right. As well as the some of the ideas that were in the 1619 project, such as the concept that our founding documents were false when they were written uh, and things like that. So, so I think that uh, parents sh should be ready to go to their school board and uh, speak up for their children and advocate for them. I was just thinking that some school boards are appointed by those who are elected, such as our governors or our mayors. Other school boards are actually elected. There's got to be some differences for us in how we approach, depending on the type of board we're dealing with. You're exactly right. And there have been some school board elections where seats have been flipped in just the past year, year and a half. Uh, one of them that made headlines was in South Lake, Texas, where you had two uh, very outspoken and very smart uh, conservatives who, who overturned seats uh, there in Texas. There was actually a report from Axios, the news organization, that there were more attempts to um, have recall votes or school board elections by the first half of last year than the entire year prior to that. So the point is to say that I think parents and local community leaders are recognizing that school boards aren't always representing right, the interests of their communities. So you know, there's, there's both this idea of going to the school board to express your values, as well as uh, being prepared to run for school board if, uh, uh, if, you, um, you, know, if you feel ready that, that that's your, the way that you want to make a difference. You know, I so appreciate you saying that because I believe that's a large part of what God has been doing, not only in America, but worldwide, waking people up to the truth and the deceptions and the corruption and the extent of evil so that his people can take our rightful place and restore law and order and so on to our lands. I've got a lot more I'd like to talk to you about. And if you'd be agreeable, I'd like to have you back on the podcast another time. Sure, I'd be glad to. Okay, then before we conclude this particular segment, you have a book coming out in March, right? That's right. It's called Splintered, Critical Race Theory and the Progressive War on Truth. And it talks a lot about what we've discussed here. You know, this idea that critical race theory is being used in classrooms, not always by name. You know, they have the, those that advocate for the idea have taken the principles and, and integrated it the content into either textbooks or lessons, but sometimes critical race theory is used by name. In fact, in Haywood Unified School District, which is across the bay from San Francisco, they issued a memo to their school community just recently that said they will keep critical race theory by name in class lessons. 
In Portland public schools, they have a, a working group called the Critical Race Theory Working Group, and they post their meeting videos on YouTube. Uh, and th those are just two examples of others that I could name for you. So also by name, they're using critical race theory and also just the principles of the theory are being put into class lessons. Well, I think one thing that's really come out for me, especially the past couple of years since the COVID outbreak and learning how things have been managed, learning how we've been oppressed rather than having uh, representatives actually representing our desires and our wills, is the importance of parents getting involved in their children's education, whether it be School Choice, which you mentioned National School Choice Week begins on Monday, January 24th, or whether it be getting involved in their local school boards. There's a number of things parents can do. And when you come back, hopefully next week, we'll see how it works out with your schedule. But when you come back, I want to get very practical on what my listeners can do uh, within their reach, things that they can do within their resources that will truly make a difference. I want to thank you so much for being part of this program, Jonathan. How can people get a hold of you if they'd like to reach out to you personally? Thank you. They can find me on Twitter at at JM underscore butcher. And they can find our resources on critical race theory at heritage.org forward slash CRT. Wonderful. Okay. I'm going to twist your arm and see if I can get you back next week. All right. Thank you. Be my pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. Wow. So much, right? Okay, let me try to summarize so we can have a better understanding. The origin of critical race theory began with a German philosophy in the 1930s known as critical theory. The entire purpose of this ideal was and is to promote Marxism, specifically through academia, beginning with Columbia University in America. And I believe America was the target because our republic-style government with all of its freedoms and rights for the people is the greatest threat for Marxism to succeed. From critical theory, critical legal theory was formulated in America in the 1970s with the intention of keeping people suppressed in order to minimize any pushback against the implementation of a Marxist-style government. Critical race theory followed in the 1980s and 90s for the purpose of dividing and conquering the American spirit and promote class distinctions claiming that America is systemically racist. This is an effort to undo all the progress we made in the 1960s civil rights era for unity and freedom and opportunity and equality under the law. In order for such radical ideals to be implanted into American thought, a restructuring of absolute truth was necessary, which established the introduction of truth being relative. Remember, Jonathan shared proponents of critical race theory claimed decisions should be based on our personal lived experiences. This claim has been repeated often enough, especially through our public schools, that we now have a society that largely believes truth is not absolute, but personal and relative. This idea about truth has created what's known as our postmodern culture. And all of this in succession is what has set the stage not only for Marxism in America, but Marxism through the One World Order, an effort by the self-appointed elite who don't believe in God and instead see themselves as the highest authority. America has remained the greatest threat to Marxism and a one-world government, which is why the battle is so fierce in our country and other countries like Australia who value God-given rights and freedoms. Notice, too, how the entire effort to promote relativism includes what Jonathan called intersectionality, which further distorts the lines of truth in matters of sexual preferences, sexual orientation, and gender identity. And to support the advancement of Marxism, 
claims that America is systemically racist and inherently bad means America is in need of reformation. All of this intentionally engineered thinking pushed into society through education of impressionable children ultimately produces a world of people who are mere victims at the mercy of those in power over us, which is the goal of Marxism. I want to share with you some excellent resources, but before I do, I want to really drill down on the utterly insane realities of our day. The primary reason these vastly encroaching systems to impose Marxism have been able to advance is because of the lack of critical thinking. It's incredible to me that critical theory, critical legal theory, and critical race theory have all advanced while the practice of critical thinking has diminished. Education in logic and reason, which are the basis of critical thinking, has been removed from our public schools for decades now. Instead of our children being given inductive instruction where they are presented the facts so they can use logic and reason to arrive at a rational conclusion, they've been indoctrinated with deductive instruction. Instead of our public schools teaching children how to think, they've been told what to think. And this is the core reason these radical ideals leading to Marxism have been able to advance in our nation. This has got to stop. Again, God says in Hosea 4.6, my people perish for lack of knowledge. People, we must wake up and we must make up for lost time now and get ourselves properly armed with knowledge to fight back the madness to restore law and order and truth to our nation and the nations of the world not only for our sakes, but because the nations are Christ's inheritance. We've been commissioned by Christ to share the gospel truth, to set people free, to establish and protect the nations that belong to Christ. Now, about the resources I want you to have. If you don't know about Intercessors for America, you need to. David Kubal and his team have done excellent work to promote truth and freedom since 1973. They recognize the need for God to intervene in the United States government and cultural issues, and they've worked tirelessly ever since to help Americans become informed and engaged in what God wants to do in our nation and in our lives. Please take time to visit their site using the link I have in the show notes. They have excellent resources on many topics, including one titled Pushing Back on Power-Hungry School Boards. You'll find that PDF link in the show notes. This particular resource gives you the history of our American school boards, first established in 1647, intended to give communities a voice in how their children were taught and how the United States Constitution, adopted in 1776, upheld locally controlled power. But the Tenth Amendment granted states oversight power. Over the years, without any real pushback from parents, The federal government's authority has often overruled the state's authority and the school board's authority, further removing parental control over schools. Can you see how this unchecked advancement of power by the federal government and people who want to destroy our nation have been permitted by we, the people? Can you see how we as citizens of our republic have failed our children on many fronts by not being involved in government or politics, not being aware, and not properly voting. The next time a person asks me why my podcasts addresses politics, governments, and current events, 
I'll challenge them with the quote largely attributed to Sir Edmund Burke, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. To help us further understand what we can and must do to reform our public school system, Jonathan Butcher is confirmed as my guest for part two of this podcast next week. In response to this podcast, I ask you to connect with me. You know, I work really hard each and every week to learn what's occurring in the world and ask God for his wisdom and insight to know what he wants me to bring you with my podcasts. Everything I do each and every day is to advance the kingdom of God by keeping us focused on the truth. So if you've benefited from my work in any way, I truly want to know. I'm a vocational minister. Ministry is what I do full time. So if you've liked what you've heard from me today, I ask you to show your support in whatever way you can. You may have noticed I no longer promote any affiliate sponsors. This is because these past 18 months or so didn't produce any benefit for them. And I'll openly share, were it not for my husband, I wouldn't be able to cover the costs associated with what I do. 99% of the cost for this podcast has come out of our family budget. It's my prayer that you, my listeners, will become at least partial supporters of this ministry. So if you believe that this podcast is an important source of truth you can trust, then consider becoming a supporter. Donations are certainly accepted, but they're not tax deductible. That's why I offer you my products and services for you to purchase. I offer my books and CDs and bumper stickers, jewelry, and other products from my web store, which you can get to through faithtoliveby.com. When you purchase through my website, be sure to use the promo code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H. Use that at checkout and get 20% discount. Also, be sure to take advantage of the free resources and bonus items listed on the show notes and my website, faithtoliveby.com. From there, you can also subscribe to my bi-monthly e-newsletter. As a new subscriber, you can choose one of three gifts I offer in appreciation of your subscription. Subscribing will also make you a preferred member where you will receive special announcements and offers not available to others. Depending upon where you listen to my podcast, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever these features are available. Your review helps the show reach more people, and it helps spread the gospel and helps people learn how to best apply their Christian faith. I hope you'll join me next week and tell your friends and family to listen right here on Faith to Live By, where we learn how to gain spiritual victory over life's issues. Until next week, I'm Pam Christian, asking you to remember, Christ died for us. The least we can do is live for Him. 